0: Hey friends, welcome back to The Journal Feed, my name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we try to keep you up on the literature, and to do that, we spoon-feed it to you. Now, this is just a reminder that if you are hearing this right now, then you are not a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, they're all good articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org, where remember we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you have any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch, we'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by Christian Gerhalt, Christopher Thome, Rebecca White, Jason Lesnick, and Clay Smith. So let's start with the fourth article. Well, oh, wish me luck on this title, it's not all English. Safety of pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria. Findings from the Registrado Informatizado de la Enfermedad Tromboembolica Venosa, riot registry, out of the journal Academic Emergency Medicine. I'm so sorry for doing that. The perk rule is probably one of my favorite decision tools. You can whip it out and bam, no more PE testing necessary, and it's less scary than ordering a D dimer. Very useful for ruling out a PE in low-risk patients, and its use is actually endorsed by the American College of Emergency Physicians, so you're justified in using it, and it's lovely, perfect. Even though there is some concern that it's not as safe as we'd like it to be. This study used the RIOT registry to retrospectively contribute to the validation of the PERK rule. A huge sample of 49,000 patients in an international registry of patients with confirmed a PE or a DVT and in the emergency department setting. These authors were retrospectively seeing if these patients would have been perk negative, meaning any patient here that was perk negative means a failure of the rule itself because they all had thromboembolic disease. Here, the rule actually failed in 0.7% of cases. And that's pretty good. That's around what I think we would consider a fairly acceptable misrate. Reassuringly, if you look at the PEs that were missed, then you see that these PEs were significantly less likely to be in any main pulmonary artery and also less likely to cause RV hypokinesis. I'd also like to mention that there were some missed, but the sticking all comers with PEs and usually use the Perk rule for low-risk patients. So of course you would still expect to find more missed here than you would necessarily in the correct use of the Perk rule, which is usually with a low wells, alas. Going one step further to apply the PESI score on these patients who had the perk rule fail them, they were much more likely than otherwise to be very low risk of 30 day mortality compared to those who were perk positive. No test is perfect, of course, but I'm reassured that the perk rule not only has a very low miss rate, but also if you do miss a PE, it's more likely to not be a major PE. I'd call this an affirmative validation of the perk rule, though it was just retrospective. In a spoonful, you may keep faith in the perk rule. In the unlikely case that it does miss a PE, then that miss PE is more likely to be low-risk. And that brings us to the fifth and final article titled Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Care in the Emergency Department 3. GRACE 3. Acute Dizziness and Vertigo in the Emergency Department out of the journal Academic Emergency Medicine. If you've been following along with the journal feed, then you know that imaging to rule out posterior stroke causing vertigo kind of sucks. Sucks pretty badly. These are emergency medicine guidelines from the GRACE 3 group about acute vertigo. This is a very welcome set of guidelines for a confusing and at times difficult presentation. GRACE 1 and 2 covered chest pain and abdominal pain, so you know, it's vertigo's turn. This document is a full 40 pages, so these are just the highlights. If you're craving more, you might actually want to read the guidelines yourself. Everyone likes to start a topic with a little bit of epidemiology, so I'm just going to mention that dizziness is a chief complaint in roughly 3% of emergency department visits. From a pedagogical perspective, I think the highest yield thing here from these guidelines is that you never have to teach anyone to ask a patient what they mean by dizziness ever again. It's not accurate, and patients change their answers over the course of minutes, so don't waste your time. I still think it's probably valuable to differentiate it from presyncope, though. Now, the authors suggest breaking dizziness down into three boxes based on timing and triggers, though they acknowledge that this approach is not validated. Here are the three patterns in which you can separate your vertical patients into. There's acute vestibular syndrome. This is acute onset of continuous, persistent vertigo lasting more than 24 hours. Next is spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome, or SEVS. This is characterized by episodes of untriggered, i.e. spontaneous vertigo, which are discrete. And lastly, there is Triggered Episodic Vestibular Syndrome, or TEVS, which is not the same thing. These are brief episodes of vertigo triggered by positional changes. So, those are the buckets that you'll try to separate all vertigo cases into, and the authors go on to make 15 recommendations about the management of vertigo. Clearly, that is too much to fit in a spoonful, so we're going to severely summarize it for you, just give you the highlights. Emergency physicians should be specifically trained to do the valuable bedside maneuvers that help in the diagnosis and treatment of patients with vertigo. Evidence shows that we just aren't very good at these things, specifically the HINTS exam, where we're just bad at the HINTS exam, but the HINTS exam is a great test when done well. And when emergency physicians are trained specifically to do it, then they too can do the test well. You just need to put in the effort and have someone who knows what they're doing train you to do it. These physical exam maneuvers should be your first-line tests. Same goes for the dix hallpike and Epley maneuvers. I bring that up because the hints exam is recommended to evaluate patients with acute vestibular syndrome that also have nystagmus. This is a high-certainty recommendation. This is probably the best way to differentiate central from peripheral vertigo. I also recommend that you add a hearing assessment to the HINTS exam. Nothing complicated, just a quick finger rub on either side, and if the patient has hearing loss, then this points quite confidently towards a central cause of vertigo. If the patient doesn't have nystagmus, then you really must assess their gait, though you should be doing this either way. The more unsteady they are, the more likely that they had a stroke. In patients with equivocal exams or exams that suggest a central cause of acute vestibular syndrome, you should get a stroke protocol MRI. You should not scan patients with SEVS, not even a CT unless there is concern for a central cause. Then a CTA or an MRA of the head is appropriate to rule out a TIA. For TEVS, they recommend routine use of the Dix-Hallpike Maneuver for diagnosis. And against CTs and MRI scans, if they have the typical features that you expect on a positive Dix-Hallpike. As for treatment, if you've diagnosed a stroke, then clearly treat as a stroke. If you've diagnosed peripheral acute vestibular syndrome, then discuss the risk and benefits of a short-term course of steroids within 3 days of symptom onset. If the diagnosis is TEVS, then you should do the Epley maneuver, ideally after specific expert-led training. Okay. That's all we have to do on that topic. That was a pretty hefty spoonful in which we summarized the new GRACE 3 guidelines for vertigo in the emergency department. So, we've covered all our articles. Let's do a quick wrap up. From the fourth article, continue to use the perk rule with confidence to rule out PEs in low risk patients. If it fails, odds are it wasn't a big PE, at least. And then from the last article, a great and accessible set of guidelines. The GRACE 3 guidelines are well done, and I encourage you to give them a read yourself. Again, if you are hearing this, then you were not a part of the members' feed and missed three articles from this past week. One of them was a trial from the recovery group on the dose of dexamethasone for steroids. Another one was how best to tell if and by how much your DKA patient is dehydrated. And then the third was a look at which clinical features you can use to rule out an occult scaphoid fracture. Links to all the articles we summarize can be found at journalfeed.org, where you can also find our newsletter to get written summaries of these articles delivered to your inbox. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.